0: Uh, Happy Church Planning Sunday. Uh, We're actually celebrating that today. You guys may not have known what that is, but it's uh, something that's near and dear to our hearts as a church, as at one time we were in fact a church plant. We'll have a a little um, announcement at the end and a little video to show you guys just about how our church is involved with church planting efforts globally and nationally. But thank you guys for being here. Um, You guys may have noticed on your seat when you came in this morning that there was one of these sitting there. That is our free gift to you. Uh, This will be the book of James. Uh, we'll be studying this book for the next several uh, months uh, together. That's what we do here at Aletheia Church. We, we study books of the Bible together. Uh, we would just ask that um, if you come back in future weeks, that you just remember to bring this with you. Uh, if you're in one of our gospel communities, to bring it with you as well. Uh, these things are really cool. They've got the scripture on the left side, and then on the right side there's plenty of room for you to take notes. So if you're a note taker during uh, sermons or in your personal devotions with the Lord, a great opportunity to do that as well. If you need a pen, we've got some people around here that will hand a pen out to you as well if you don't have something to write with. Uh, But we just want you guys to have the Word of God on hand uh, because we believe that that is how God is speaking us today today, is through His Word. And it is used by God to inform us of who He is, who we are, and how He wants to change us and mold us in His image. And so... uh, As we study the book of James, I want to share a little bit with you guys before we dive in this morning, just so you have a little bit of background about this letter as we study it over the course of the next probably about 12 to 13 weeks. And uh, this this letter, this epistle was written by uh, a guy named James uh, who happened more than likely to be the half brother um, of Jesus. And it was written in the 8040s. Uh, so we're talking about this letter being written to some churches uh, in, in, the, uh, in the area of Jerusalem and Israel and maybe uh, surrounding outlying areas, but we're talking less than 20 years had passed since the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, Jesus' little half-brother James was the leader of the church of Jerusalem, and he wrote this letter to Jewish Christians who had uh, begun to be scattered throughout the Roman world, and probably more specifically in, in Israel and Syria, and, and maybe even like up into like modern-day Turkey. But uh, they had been scattered in these various places. And so James is writing this letter to encourage them and teach them how to continue and walk in the faith in the midst of persecution. You know, it didn't take long after the resurrection of Christ for followers of Jesus to begin receiving persecution. And so what we see then is James not telling the church to run from it, but how to approach it and walk into that. And so, uh, this letter, as we'll see as we study it, actually has a number of, of difficulties of interpretation. Um, for those of you guys that are into theology and doctrine, some of you guys may even know that Martin Luther, for example, had a hard time reconciling uh, James's teaching on faith and works, and we'll cover that in a couple of weeks when we get to that section. But I think what we're going to see overall as we study this letter together is James's letter is full of wisdom, practical wisdom for us today. I mean, this, this letter is immensely practical. While other New Testament authors like the Apostle Paul tend to uh, maybe focus a little bit more doctrinally in their letters, they want people to know uh, truths about God. They want people to, he wants people to know like deeper theology about who God is and what he's done. James's focus is much more so on the practical outworkings of doctrine. So and it doesn't mean that Paul doesn't address those things, but if you if you look at the letters and kind of compare them, you will notice that James is far more practical in his application of his theology. And so we're going to be challenged as we study this letter together to examine both what we believe, but as we examine those beliefs, we're going to be pushed by James to connect what we believe here with here, and then allow that movement in our heart and our emotions to then move to our hands and to actually live that out. Because I think one of the things that we may even admit to if we've been a Christian for any period of time it's really easy to confess or mentally assent to the truth of scripture. It's a lot harder to live the outworkings of that in your life. It's a lot harder to be a doer of the word as James says and not just a hearer alone. And so we're going to we're going to process through this together. And I think, you know, what we'll see as we get to the end of our time here is we're going to be really, really encouraged both by the theology of James, but we're also going to be really, really encouraged by the practical wisdom he gives us on how to apply that and live that out together as God's children. And so these first 18 verses that we're looking at this morning are a good springboard into understanding James's style And tone for his readers. And before we start looking at the actual text itself, I want to encourage you guys to just pause and think about something for just a moment with me. Okay. How many of you guys when you were younger could not wait until you became an adult so you could do grown-up things? Okay. The vast majority of the room. Right? Most of us, like, we don't like being told by our parents what to do. We can't wait to stay up late and do whatever we want, eat whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. You know, I remember as a kid, I used to say to my parents, I can't wait till I'm old enough to move out of your house so I can do whatever I want. And I can stay up late and I'll finally be mature enough and old enough to do whatever I want. Now, for the kids in the room this morning, let me give you a reality check for a second. I am now old enough as an adult to do many of the things that I believed I was going to be able to do as an adult. Here's some wisdom for you, practically free of charge this morning. People still tell me what to do all the time. They they love it. Like the elders of this church, Pastor Daniel in particular, loves bossing me around, right? My wife keeps me in order, right? Tells me what to do all the time. My kids even try to do the same. Right? Not only that, I can now stay up as late as I want. I'm in bed before 10 most nights. I'm old. My body wants sleep. So you will realize that the things you wanted as a kid will not be the same things you want once you reach adulthood. And now one of the things I realize more than anything as I'm rounding into middle age is that the more I learn and the more I grow, And the more I experience life around me as a husband, as a father, as a follower of Jesus, right, as a man, the less I realize I actually know and the more I desire wisdom. And I think if we took a step back, right, and just pause, because all of us in this room this morning, if you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ in here this morning, one of his disciples, a common heart longing for Christians, is the desire to mature and grow as followers of Jesus. I have yet to meet a follower of Jesus who was ever satisfied with their life where they were currently at. They always want to know the Lord more. They want to be more like Him. They want to stop sinning. and They want to be more like their Savior. They want to be better at sharing their faith. They want to know the Bible better. It, it might be a, a number of different things that you might describe As maturity, but I have yet to meet a Christian who didn't want to mature. And so, James, in these first 18 verses, as he writes to these Christians who are kind of scattered throughout Israel and the surrounding areas. He's writing to them and he's going to start off by basically saying to them, here is my charge or encouragement to you on how you might experience spiritual wholeness, spiritual maturity. The word he's going to use in verse four of chapter one is is completeness, right? Here is how God has designed living on earth to be for our good, our maturity, our sanctification, if you want to use the theological doctrinal term. Here is how God has designed it and what it looks like. And he's going to share three things with them to see that. That God leads us to experience spiritual wholeness through trials, through the gaining of wisdom from God himself, and through faith. And that is gonna be his encouragement to them to swim. So turn over to James chapter one and look at just these four, first four verses with me. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? So he starts out there in verse two, right, by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers. Right. So he's writing to Christians, right? That's why he uses that term brothers, and he tells them to count it all joy. Now in the Greek, right, that word count it literally means to consider or to think about something ahead of time. It's to, to kind of like ponder something and how you, you approach it. Um, so the word means that um, you are developing or thinking through a belief that does not rest on your feelings or your sentiment on a given occasion, right? You, you come to the truthfulness of something separate from your emotional feelings. That's the way this Greek word worked. So James, as we see here then in these, these first couple of verses, is calling these believers not to fake a response to the suffering and trials they are currently facing as a church, But what he is calling them to do is to think about them beyond just the difficulty that they're facing currently in that moment. You know, these Christians were likely being persecuted by Jews in the region, some of them even being arrested and martyred, and many of them when he says that they are in the dispersion, have been forced to move away from Jerusalem because their livelihoods were taken from them because they were were calling themselves Christians and following Jesus. So they experienced a level of persecution that we, at least here in the United States, don't currently risk facing. Losing their livelihood, maybe even possibly losing their lives. And notice how James words things here. He tells them that there should be an expectation on their lives to meet trials. He doesn't say if you meet trials. What does he say? When. He says when you meet trials of various kinds. Right? He's saying, hey, there are various types of trials and difficulties We will face as Christians things like poverty, injustice, conflict, sickness, grief over loss. All of us in this room have experienced trials or suffering or difficulty on some level. And one of the things that I think makes the teachings of Jesus so unique is that there is no promise in this life for full release from the difficulty and hardships in life. But there is an ethic and a way to approach them that God gives us so we might experience maturity and growth through them. Right? James kind of paints these various trials that the church is facing very broadly. And he doesn't even go into the specific situation that these churches might be in. And I think there's a very intentional reason he does that. James knows something about us as humans. He knows something about me. He knows something about you. He knows something about the people that he's writing this letter to. He knows that that as humans, we are insanely self-consumed or self-absorbed. I mean, think about the last time you went through a hardship. Some of you guys might be walking through one right now. And I want you to pause and think about what what that was like. What are you walking through right now? For the students in here, I know every one of you is walking through a hardship right now. Exams are next week. And every professor thinks they're the only professor you have. As you think through this, though, Right? Here's what most of us tend to do when we're faced with a trial or a hardship. We become consumed by the difficulty and the hardship and the emotional turmoil of it all. And we completely lose sight of everything else around us. You assume that your suffering, your trial, is the worst thing and that no one understands or is able to understand what is going on. And then as we sit in that and we continue to stare down the misery that we're sitting in, emotions like anger, resentment, depression, frustration begin to boil up in our lives and they rob us of joy and create in us an inability to see any good that may be going on during that trial. I've been a pastor long enough to have seen this in enough people to have seen the rerun of this reality over and over again in people's lives, including my own. You know, many of you guys are familiar with this story that my youngest son, Josiah, has epilepsy. And he began having seizure activity basically from birth. And the first couple of months he spent probably 70 plus percent of his days in the hospital as the doctors were trying to figure out what was going on. And when I said earlier that, that we're big about church planting, one of the reasons we are is because Alathia Church at one point in time was a church plant. We were small, we were meeting downtown. There was only one staff person and that was me, myself, and I. And then we had a kid with special needs and another son at home because those were some of the darkest and hardest days of my life. And the same for my wife. And I remember in in, in the midst of it, right, crying, being angry with God, hurt, crying out to God for him to heal Josiah and not seeing anything, worrying about the financial implications for my family. And there was a friend of mine who, who called me probably like in the second month of Josiah's life. And he just wanted to check in on me and he wanted to ask me how we are doing. And one of the things he said to me, and it stuck with me till still to this day, is we're sitting there, he's like, well, what is God teaching you during this time? Man, I tell you what, all I wanted to do was yell at him. It's like, dude, who are you? Like, what do you mean teaching me during this time? You know, but I'm a pastor, so I at least had enough maturity tonight to scream at him over the phone. But I said, I'll be honest with you, man. Like right now, we're just in survival mode. Like we're just, we're just trying to get through this thing. Like I, I have no idea. Maybe, maybe we'll learn something on the back end. I have a hard time seeing that, but maybe we will. You know, six years later on the back end, I can promise you this. God taught us a ton through that season. As we were loved well by that little church plant during that season. Some of you guys who are still here today, right, bringing us meals, watching our oldest son, giving us you know, information for those of you that were in the medical world, giving us information so we could help parse through what the doctors were telling us about our kid. Right, the church really did become the body of Christ for us in that season. And we got to realize that although we had moved here to start this church and we felt like we were on an island and that, you know, we were doing ministry all alone and that all of our family was back in Virginia and all of our close ministry relationships and partnerships were gone, that God had given us a new family here in Gainesville that went deeper than blood, but that was rooted in a love for Christ. We gained lifelong friends during that season. We saw faith and others grow apart from us during that season. And we saw Josiah get on a medication regimen that he needed and now is a normal, crazy seven-year-old boy. But in the midst of that trial, it was difficult, and so this is what Paul, as excuse me, James, as he takes a step back, he's he's telling these churches as they're in the midst of this trial, in this suffering, in this hardship. Hey, count it, think through it, process through it as joy, because I promise you, God is doing something in the midst of this. Right? James's point is that trials are God's means. By teaching us as his followers how to persevere in a fallen and broken world around us. Right, look at what he says. He says that testing our trials produced steadfastness, and that steadfastness leads to being perfect and complete, lacking nothing wholeness. What if the trial? or difficulty you are walking through right now is not just some miserable reality, but God's design to show you that there's more to life than just the comforts and realities of this world. Maybe the trial that you're walking through has been designed by God to strengthen and deepen your faith in Him and to lead you and mature you into God, who God created you to be. You, some of you guys have walked with Jesus long enough to have walked through some difficult seasons. And the consistent theme I hear from people when they talk about this is, they, is, is always this. Those that have made it out and remain steadfast through the trial on the other side, they say it in various ways, but it all sounds like this. Man, I I saw God's faithfulness in a new way. God God maybe wasn't faithful to me in the way that I wanted, but he provided, he cared for us, he showed up. And in that, a deeper and more abiding trust in God and his goodness is birthed inside of you. When I look back on that trial that Jackie and I walked through with Josiah, the level of my faith and trust in God's ability to provide for myself and for my family grew so dramatically that I don't want to go back to what I believed or thought about God beforehand. That doesn't mean I would sign up for the suffering again, but the fruit of what we walked through was worth it. And that's exactly what James is trying to get across to these churches. And I, and I would just submit this to you as well as, as, we, as you may be sitting here this morning thinking through your own trial, thinking through your own difficulty, thinking through your own suffering. Trials and difficulty and suffering as we process through them personally often seem so difficult because of unmet expectations in our own heart. Think back to the story I shared with Josiah. Why was that so difficult for us? Obviously, there was a very real physical reality of what was going on before us. But it was littered with unmet expectations that I had on the way my life was supposed to be. My wife was supposed to give birth to a healthy son without any complications, without any troubles ever. And when that expectation was ripped from me, I was left with two options. Trust and continue to believe that God is still good or wallow in misery and my plight because my expectations have not been met. And one of the things we see Scripture teach us time and time again is that God's desire for you is far greater than your expectations of what your reality are supposed to be. See, God cares about my my son, but he cares about him far more holistically than just his physical health. He cares far more holistically than just about my own physical health, well-being, Socioeconomic status, that God's love for us is to lead us to see His faithfulness in fresh and abounding ways so that our faith and trust in Him becomes unwavering even against the strongest of circumstances. And notice how James, he doesn't say that this will be e- easy as he calls them to count it joy, he's actually saying, this is going to be a mental and emotional battle for you. But that trials have a purpose and that that purpose is a deeper and richer trust in our creator. And so he starts off this letter by saying, okay, I want you guys to experience a greater depth of love and understanding and faith in your God. And if you want to, if you're here this morning and and your prayer is that I want to grow and mature and love God more and, and be a better follower of Jesus and grow as a disciple, yes and amen, we are here with you. But just know that the soil on which God frequently chooses to do that in you is through trials and difficulty. There's a propensity for us to believe that if we just come to Jesus, all of our cares will be taken away. And the disciples and the apostles and the followers of Jesus actually give us a far different reality. That true maturity in Christ comes from steadfastness through trials with Him, not in the abundance of blessing and prosperity. And then he's going to share with them kind of the the two means by which God helps us walk through those trials. He's going to say that we walk through them both by wisdom and through faith. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Guess what? When you are facing a trial or difficulty, one of the reasons it is so difficult to walk through that trial is that you lack the wisdom to approach it holistically. Anyone who's raised a young child knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? If you tell a young child that they can't have dessert before dinner, it is a meltdown in the house. And as a dad, the first time I ever experienced with this, this with my kids, I was like, I didn't even tell him he couldn't have the dessert. I just told him he had to wait till after dinner. Right? And, and to my kids, it was always... The worst thing ever because I was robbing them of their autonomy and the joy and their desire. And you sit down with a kid and you're like, like, especially with my youngest, I'll be like, Josiah, dude, I didn't even say you can't do it. I just said not right now. By the way, God says that to us a lot, by the way. Sometimes we think God's saying no, and sometimes he's just saying, not right now, chill. Hey, like some of you guys, you come to me like, I want to be married. And God's like, not right now. And there's a reason why. As, as James writes to them, right, he says, hey, we struggle with this because holistically we lack the ability to see the full reality of what God is doing. We can only see what's right before us. And James's solution for them is to not throw a temper tantrum like my kids would, to not go all, woe is me and and cry, but instead to take a step back and say, go to God and ask him for wisdom as you walk through this. See, what James says here in verse five is that God is often more willing to give wisdom to me than I am willing to ask for it. Look at the language that he uses there. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives what? Generously, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Douglas Moose says that wisdom is the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. That God's wisdom helps you to discern what is actually going on, but also carry out what you need to do in the midst of difficulty. Right, this is the same thing that Solomon was trying to teach his sons in the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 with me. He says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. Some of you are like, man, the best thing that could ever happen to me is I could get the job that I want, or the relationship that I want, or the promotion that I need, or the financial windfall that I need. And Solomon, probably the richest, most successful king in Israel, is like, better than all of that is wisdom from God on how to deal with things. Wisdom is far better than any of that. And James encourages these Christians, go to God for wisdom in the midst of trials. Because God is faithful to give wisdom when asked. He's faithful to give generously. He's faithful to give it to all. And I love this part. God gives without reproach. If you don't know what that word reproach means, it means without chiding or taunting or frustration. Some of us have a really hard time understanding the the heart of God towards us because maybe our relationships with our grandparents or our parents or our teachers or our coaches or anyone that had authority over us in our lives they may have led us but maybe they led us harshly right and I like guys I love my kids but weak man that I am, sometimes my kids come to me and I help them, but I visibly distru- like display frustration to them. It will be one of the many areas that I am continuously repenting of before God and my children. You know, and so my kids will come to ask me to help and they're interrupting something that I'm doing. and I'm like, ah, you know, and I'll go help them. Right? I still, I'm still engaging. I'm showing wisdom. I'm helping. I'm doing these things right. But I'm displaying to my kid, you're an inconvenience to me. Do you see what James is saying here to us, though? Doesn't work that way with God. Going through a trial, a temptation, you go to him and you ask him for wisdom, God's like, hey, let's go. I'm here for you. I'm ready to help. I desire more than anything to help you see this clearly and walk through this. And James' encouragement to them is, go to him. Because when you are in the midst of a trial, self-consumed and difficulty, one of the things where Apt to do so quickly is to also become self sufficient and try to solve our own problems in our own way. And James's encouragement to us is like, look, no offense, you're a fool. You may even be the author of your own trial. You think you're going to be the author of the solution? Good luck. God is not a fool. You know, he kind of spoke the universe into existence. Do you think maybe that should be someone you should go to for wisdom? It's kind of how I talk to my oldest son. He's getting closer and closer to his teenage years, and I took him away this summer to have a conversation with him about you know, what life was going to look like as he was becoming a teenager. And one of the things I told him is, hey, dude, like there are going to be topics coming up in the next couple of years that you are going to want to know about as your body changes and whatever else. You can come to dad and talk to him at any time. Here is my one request from you. Do not go to your friends for advice. They're just as stupid as you are about this stuff. If we're looking for wisdom and knowledge, we need to go to the source of those things, which is God himself. And you have a God who gives wisdom and wisdom. Generously, faithfully, and without reproach. And James says, Don't just go to him for wisdom, but go by faith to him. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man. Unstable in all his ways. You know, when we go to God for wisdom in trials, James's encouragement to us is to go in faith, not doubting. And when he says not doubting, he, he means kind of doubting in this, right? And I would submit to you that this same doubt is the same doubt that led Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's the same doubt that leads many of us to give in to sin when tempted. And that is this, we doubt, is God really good? Does he really have my best interest in mind? And James says, don't, like, I promise you, God has your best interest in mind. Trust him and go to him. Because if you don't, you'll be double-minded, right? And some people will teach that this this kind of like odd theology from these verses. They'll say, oh, well, you don't have because you don't ask because you lack faith, right? You're double-minded. And because you don't have enough faith in God, God doesn't answer. And that is not what James is teaching here. What he's saying when he calls us double-minded and lacking of faith is that we actually have split loyalties that will ask God for wisdom, but will also look to other things as well, looking to the wisdom of man. And so instead of following just the wisdom of God, we split our approach to our trial or our difficulty. We'll both approach it with what God might be teaching us, but we'll also approach it with what the world tells us. And he says what ends up happening is we're like the waves of the sea becoming unstable, being tossed to and fro, because we don't know which way to go, because the wisdom of the world is most frequently pitted against the wisdom of God. That the wisdom of God might tell you to do one thing and the wisdom of world might tell you to do something else. And when you are pressed to make a decision, good luck. He even gives us an example of that here in James, right? Look at verse nine through 11 for me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Some of you are like, what, how is, how is this saying that? Look closely and think about this for a second. What does worldly wisdom tell us about money and finances and socioeconomic status? There are some things that most of us in this room this morning implicitly believe about money and finances without knowing whether it's actually biblical or not or what God thinks about it, right? If I said this to you, a person who has money and is rich, right? What do we tend to think about them as Americans? Successful, driven, entrepreneurial, smart, Wise, calculated. Some of us even believe, right, especially if we're facing some financial hardship of our own, that rich people are problem free, peaceful, and experience a ton of security. Hear that silence? Right? Some of us know we believe that even if we want to say we don't. Oh, if I just had the right job, if I just had the right amount of money on my paycheck, if I could just get that raise, if I just gotten that promotion, right, life would be so much easier. Maybe. I don't have this written down here, but let me just say this to you guys. Some of the most miserable people I've ever met in my life were the richest. Think about what Jesus shares in the Gospel of Mark. Look at Mark chapter 10. He says, And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Some of us misunderstand this, right? But the rich young ruler ruler walks away not because he doesn't want salvation nor because he doesn't have even faith in Jesus to be his savior. No, he walks away because he cannot bear the thought of needing God more than he needs his financial security. And notice what James says to them here about wisdom and faith. He says, the poor boast in their exaltation. They've got nothing to offer God. They're poor by the world standards. They're viewed as failures, unable to take care of themselves, and yet they're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the rich, they boast in their humiliation because although they have money and the ability to provide for themselves and secure themselves and take care of themselves, not one ounce of gold or treasure can satisfy the wrath of God. And so they boast in their humiliation, their wickedness before a holy God, the way all of us do, because they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Both the rich and the poor, by faith in Christ alone, Boast not in their works, but in the work of Jesus, even in their trials. Yeah, money might make your trial easier. It won't free you from it. And this is why Paul says we, James says we go by faith. Because the wisdom of the world is lacking at the end of the day. And we walk by faith in our trials just as we should to be saved. And as we walk by faith, we walk in wisdom. Look what he says in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Paul says, you want another example of wisdom and how we tend to mess things up? Right? Trials are external circumstances brought on by the world or difficulties in the brokenness of earth around us. But temptation is an internal pressure, sometimes even brought on by trials, but is always internal. And he says, some of us, right, we walk into difficulty and we're tempted to sin and we do all these different things and we start wanting to blame God. And I'm telling you to cry out to him in wisdom and remain steadfast, trusting in him. Because otherwise, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, that you will be deceived by your own desires. Right? James says, look, God does not tempt us to sin. Instead, we pursue Jesus by faith. And when we fall short or sin, right, we confess and repent of that, taking hold of the promises of forgiveness that God has given us in Christ. And he even shares with them how temptation works, right? Some of this might be new to you guys. If you find yourself habitually struggling with sin, here's the game plan that Satan uses with us every time. He takes a desire that we have, Sometimes it's a good desire, sometimes a bad one, but there's a desire given and placed there. And then that desire, right, is used to lure and entice us to run after that thing at all costs. It might be money, it might be wealth, it might be sex, it might be relationships, celebrity, whatever it may be, whatever your temptation may be, whatever that desire may be, it might even be rooted from a good place, but it's used to then entice you and to seek it at all costs. Right? As Paul says in Romans chapter 1 it causes us to run after and worship the creature rather than the the creation rather than the creator. counterfeit gods, counterfeit gospels. Right? Here's one of the ways I see this regularly manifesting itself in people. Some of you guys have a desire to be married and have a family one day. That is a good and godly desire. But you run after it and you seek it in ways that are not for your good or God's glory. And what you end up doing is you end up idolizing marriage, you end up idolizing a spouse, you end up idolizing kids. And you place on that relationship, on that desire, on that person, on those children, an expectation that they can never meet. Because God has designed us to need him above all else. And I promise you, if you run after these things in the way that James describes here, all of that does, all that does is conceive sin and sin will lead to death. Death of opportunities, death of relationships, death of communion with God and others because sin wreaks havoc wherever it goes wisdom demands we take responsibilities for the desires lurking in our own hearts and then we by faith take them to Jesus for forgiveness and to repent All right, so here's James's encouragement to this church or to these Christians that are scattered throughout the Holy Land Trials will come upon us. How will we face them? Through our own power? Through suffering? Misery? Anger? Failing? Or we can go the better way. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What is the crown of life? It's Jesus. It's your position as a son or daughter in the Most High God. Adopted, forgiven, loved, accepted, given an inheritance. All the things that God describes of those who are in Christ. And as you stand firm and steadfast in trials and persevere looking forward to the day when trials will cease and we will simply enjoy the presence of our King. That's when we know we'll experience Jesus. I mean, look at how James finishes here with the promises he gives them, starting in verse 17. Every good... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Look at the promises that God gives us there. He says, guys, I know you're suffering. I know you're in trials. I know that there seem to be some easy solutions and easy ways out of your trials and temptations. Don't take them. Run to Jesus. Because God is the source of all joy. I promise you, you can trust him. Look at the promises he gives. He says that God is sovereign, he's the father of lights. Right? This means that God set all things in motion. He is the one that's capable of delivering. He says that God is trustworthy. He says that there's no variation or shadow due to change. See the promise in that? God is not fickle. Seek him and ask for wisdom. And honor him to grow because God does not change. You may have friends that have walked out on you or have changed, but God is still there. And he says that God is generous because he brought us forth by the word of truth that he, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Jesus gives us new life in him and longs to care for, nurture, and redeem us. So how will you face your trial? James's call to us is to not face them in our own power, but to consider it joy, knowing that God has called us to a trial or difficulty to strengthen us in our faith and resolve in Christ. Right? Some of you guys met Tim Yarborough, at least the guys in the room, when he led the men's retreat a couple times. He has this, Famous saying, right? Sometimes he even annoys me with it when I've heard him say it, right? God, thank you for the people, pressures, and problems in my life. What? He prays actively, God, thank you for all the things that are making my life not fun. And when I first met him, I'm like, he's, he's faking this, this cannot be real. There's no way. Now that guy genuinely means it. And if you talk with him and you start presenting a problem to you, he's like, let's pause, let's take a minute, let's thank God for this problem. <laughs> no, like I'm asking you for wisdom to solve it. He's like, nope, and we're going to thank God that he has seen fit that you might be able to stand steadfastly through this trial. We seek him in joy. We seek him in wisdom, knowing that God's way is better. And we seek him by faith, knowing there is nothing that can destroy those who are in him. Because he promises to give generously and that we are his first fruits.